Colossians chapter 2 is where we turn again this morning at the beginning of a section uh, from verse, verses 9 through 15, really, in, in this um, chapter 2 of Colossians that Paul is imploring and encouraging and admonishing even the believers there in Colossae to remain strong in the faith, to not be turned aside to this doctrine or this uh, persuasive argument or this mystical kind of fascinating possibility. Oh, I've never thought of it that way before. Uh, Paul says, you don't need to think of it that way before. Think of Christ. Think of him and his glory and his fullness. Don't be deceived through these various speakers who are trying to come in and infiltrate this hallowed sanctum, which is not just a building, but the people, people that Christ has uh, died for and he has suffered for. He is the one that ought to have first place, first uh, um, place of prominence, priority, first place of attention, giving to Christ himself. And so Paul spends these verses, as he really spends the whole epistle, lifting up Christ, saying, let's look to him, let's find our sufficiency in him, let's find him as the substance of our faith, you know, where it really rests, not in ourselves, not in our circumstances, but in Christ alone. Here in verses 9 through 15, he talks first, we'll see it today, about Christ's deity, his Godhead-ness, that he is God in a fleshly body. And we'll look at that more carefully. But we'll also see how we, our lives, our believing lives, are complete in Christ. Remember back in chapter 1, he talked about working to present every person complete in Christ, or full, or mature, or fully equipped for life. And so he says, you do, you have this completeness in him. Then he talks about uh, death, burial, and resurrection. In In verses 11 and 12 and into 13, he speaks about Christians have died in Christ, but also buried with him and raised up together with him. Well, what does that accomplish? Well, verses uh, end of 13 and 15 talk about forgiveness. What is what we have? We have cancellation of debt. So we, we're not debtors anymore. We are cleared. We are granted all these things. Plus, Christ has disarmed any kind of opposition, any kind of accusation against us through the enemies that are, are rallied against us. He has shut them down and even shut them up. Well, having given an overview of the text, let me just read it for us. Beginning actually at verse 6, kind of gets us into this this passage. Colossians 2 and verse 6 says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and being built up in him, and having been established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and abounding with thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, not according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority, in whom you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead." And you, being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has also taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, 
having triumphed over them in him. Paul just heaps on the glories of salvation in this passage, but salvation that flows from God the Father's work in God the Son as mediated out through the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit. He speaks all about these wonderful realities. We looked about it last time, verse 8, that we should not be taken captive through tradition of men, elementary, you know, the basic principles of the world. When we have Christ, why should we look at Christ and say, you know, I think I've got something better over here. I think what they're teaching, uh, you know, Christ is still part of it, but let me turn my attention over here. Whenever we turn our attention away from Christ, it's not going to end well. If there's one thing God is, and he's many, many wonderful things, in fact, we could talk about his various perfections, but one thing he is, he says, I am a jealous God. You may not have any other gods before me. Do not supplant my right place, my right authority in your life and in the whole universe, all creation. Christ is central. Don't be, don't take don't allow anyone to take you captive through anything other than than Christ. And we talked also last time about how Christ takes us captive. And lest we think, oh, I don't want to be a captive. Well, we are captives. Either you're captive of the world, which is going to end well. It's going to end in death, suffering, and pain. Or we're captives of Christ, which is that's life. That is freedom in Christ. And we have a good master. He says, my burden is light, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, come to me. And we do, we want to come to him. He is the, he's where it's at, and we come to him. Well, he says here now in verse 9, giving various reasons, going through all this passage, why in the world, why should we pay such attention to Christ? What's so special about him? Well, as if he didn't already established that back in chapter 1 when he said he's the firstborn from the dead and, and all those wonderful things beginning, well, it doesn't even begin, right at the, from the outset, he, he's always celebrating Christ. But here he says, for in him. He's giving reasons. He's giving reasons. Why should we come to Christ? Why should we be so vigilant against false teachers? I mean, these false teachers, you know, maybe they're a little bit right and maybe they're a little bit wrong, but, you know, we can just take the good with the bad. Well, we want to make sure that we are giving our first attention to Christ. And that means paying attention to his word. It's not like we just, we commune with Christ, God, you know, Christ, give me a message. Well, he's He's given us a message. Let's pay attention to the word, uh, the word of Christ. If there's anything that is in our life that would lead us away from the centrality, the the authority of Christ, then we're, we, as much as we might be considering, we're pursuing wisdom and intelligence and information and, and whatever, it, it's not, leading us in the right direction. And that's not even to say that Christ isn't big enough for us to explore the universe and say, you know, kind of like that old cosmonaut back in the 60s, I guess, who said, you know, they say that God is in the heavens. Well, I've been there. I didn't see him. Okay. There's a little bit of a misunderstanding about that. You know, God is outside of time and space. And yet he's very near to us. We can call upon him and he has given uh, himself to us. And yet to have that empirical basis of knowledge, you know, if I didn't see it, smell it, taste it, whatever, then it's not real. Well, Christ is it. We don't see him, but we have eyewitness testimony of many people that did. First John 1 talks about our hands handled. We saw, we heard. We were there with him. 
We saw Christ. We saw him die. We saw his resurrected body. We saw his ascension. We saw it all, and we wrote it down for you. We give honor to Christ. But why Christ? Well, in him, all this fullness of deity dwells. The emphasis here, I was going to say emphasis, which is to kind of get you on edge, but the, the, the main thrust of this verse is in him. In Christ alone is where the, the reality is. The fullness of deity is here. This is talking not just about in his body, we have this, but in Christ, in his person. Because really, when you, when you come down to it, you, you cannot separate human body from human non-body. And in other words, as scripture has various terms for it, outer man and inner man kind of thing. We are one person. For us to try to cut us into, well, uh, and, and part, of, part of the reason we do it is because the scripture allows for it in the sense that our bodies are going to die. Put our bodies in a grave and, and awaiting the resurrection from the dead, the reunion of soul, spirit, kind of slash soul, spirit, and flesh. Because that's how God intended us for us to be. One of the horrible realities of death is that separation that we are no longer one person. We now have a decaying body, which we do have already. Our bodies are decaying day by day. And yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. It is that glorious reunification of the inner man and the outer man that we look forward to in Christ and not a reunification of our regenerate uh, spirit with fallen flesh. I mean, who would want to inherit this again? But a resurrected body as if as Christ himself has he is the first fruits of those who believe he is the firstborn of uh, from the dead that's what we look forward to in Christ alone is this wonderful co- connection or unification not just of a human spirit soul spirit and a human body but a god the god with a human body it's just it boggles the mind how that can even be a possibility. How in the world can that be real? That God is not now bound to a body. When Christ became flesh, it wasn't like he stopped being God, and somehow he is uh, he by adding um, or by humbling himself. Philippians two talks about this by humbling himself, taking on the form of a man. He did not uh, uh, give up any of his personal rights and privilege. Now, he submitted to the Father. He always did things through the power of the Spirit, but he added humanity to himself. He is not limited thereby. Even we can say, uh, even if he has a body, and even if his physical body is where? It's at the right hand of God in heaven, not the heavens that the cosmonauts saw, but the heavens that are beyond that, uh, the the uh, the eternal heavens, not the, the created heavens. And Yet he said, I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. Well, how in the world is he with us always? How how can the scripture speak about the spirit of Christ indwelling us? When Christ is in heaven, how can his spirit be with us? And that just, it, it's the mystery of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in which the scripture does talk about in Romans 8. We'll look at it in a little bit. Romans 8 talks about the spirit of God which would, in that context, indicate God the Father, and yet it then also talks about the Spirit of Christ. And it's talking about the same Spirit, Spirit that indwells us. How can it be the Spirit of God, and the Spirit, God the Father, Spirit of Christ? Well, it's because we have a triune Godhead. We have 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not different modes of being or, or different, you know, he presents himself in different ways, but he's really the same God. Oh, he is the same God. And this it's hard for our finite, finite minds to, to understand it. And yet, one of the things about biblical theology is we affirm everything that the Scripture teaches, even if in our limited understanding and capacity to understand we don't see how this can be true at the same time. For example, you know the, this this triune Godhead, or the the how can God become flesh, or even how can Peter and Paul and Luke? I just refresh my memory again. You know, Luke wrote the majority. The Doctor Luke, physician, wrote the majority of the New Testament. A Gentile writer, most likely, wrote about I think it's like twenty seven percent of the New Testament. But how can it be a product of man, written by men, and yet a product of God. We affirm both realities. Peter does himself. He's one of the scripture writers, and he says, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Or David, who was a prophet, he said he wasn't speaking about himself. By the Spirit of God, he was speaking about the Messiah. So we see that wonderful mystery. We affirm human involvement. Daniel wrote Daniel. Ezra wrote Ezra. Uh, Joshua wrote Joshua, and and, uh, maybe the last bit of of Deuteronomy, the recording, the death of Moses and all that. And yet it is God's word together. We affirm both of these realities. We affirm here in this verse, Christ is God in the flesh. He is no, um, he is fully God or truly God. He is truly God, truly man. We affirm both realities. You know, we, we just studied the Gospel of Luke and we saw various times when Jesus was tired. He's the eternal God. He doesn't need anything. And yet he also was hungry. He was thirsty on the cross. He had a human mother. We said, how in the world can this be? Well, the scripture teaches it. And so we affirm it. We say that is what God says. And we are going to rest in that knowledge because it might be that God knows some things that we don't which is kind of tongue-in-cheek. Obviously, God knows more. than, and, and yet, what he has revealed to us is our joy and our... It ought to consume our, our affections and our attentions. It ought to be something I can't wait to wake up in the morning to read God's word again. I've read it, you know, all these different... But this morning, it's a new day. I want to read God's word to me. I mentioned at the beginning of chapter 2 that Paul said... Um, Actually, at the end of chapter four, he talks about this letter. You know, you read, you share my letter that I'm sending you in this church, and and you read the letter that I'm sending this other church and share. And we think, oh, wouldn't it be nice if if God wrote a letter to Liberty Bible Church? You know, have a special unit, you know, uh, Paul the Apostle, blah, blah blah blah, to those saints in Crittenden and the Grant County or in Greater North Northern Kentucky area. Well, we have it. We have His Word to us. It's not like we need more revelation. God's word is settled in the heavens. Now, we're going to know more when we get to heaven, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. And yet, we don't need to know anything more than we have been revealed to us right now. Everything we need for life and godliness, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, has been given to us in the true knowledge of his Son. Wow! I mean, that's good news right there. In Christ, we want to give our attention to Christ in him. And he has this wonderful statement back in Colossians 2 and verse 9. All the fullness of deity... Now, first of all, it says all, not just a portion, not just a majority, not just even 99 point whatever percent, all, or the entirety, or every possible aspect of 
as we say, the fullness of deity, which we'll look at what that means. But all is an encompassing term. And each of these terms, really, uh, Paul is is very politely, very gently coming right into the face of the false teachers and saying what those false teachers are saying you saying to you and teaching you is not right. Because they would say, uh, yeah, well, uh, Christ is really important and everything. And, and part of the... the uh, the the train of divine beings that emanate from God the Father, God the One God, and we have uh, you know, Christ, and we have different angels and rulers and authorities, and on and on it goes until down down we come to us. And so, yeah, Christ is just one of those wonderful created beings in which uh, the the Godhead you know is is uh, is being manifested, being uh, proven to humanity. Well, no. Christ is not a created being. He is the creator. He is outside of creation. All things are made by him. All things are made for him. He is the one outside of this, this created universe right here. And for us, we're inside of it. We're inside time and space. And so for us to, for us to consider the infinity of God, the eternality of God is just beyond us. And yet we have in Christ all the fullness, every aspect of of uh, of deity in Christ himself. Now, we also need to affirm, though, in saying that, that there is a distinction when Jesus says, I am sending you the Spirit, or my Spirit, or another comforter. He's, he's saying, well, it's, it's God, but it's also the Spirit coming to you. And I'm going back to God because I'm not with him right now. And, and for us, to, it's just hard to consider this triune Godhead. But again, we affirm everything that, that uh, even David, the uh, King David writes about this thing, or Moses from the very beginning. Uh, the opening scripture says in the beginning, God created. Well, God is in the plural. Created is in the singular. We have this this multi, multiple or, or manifold, full, what we would call triune Godhead doing a, a an action that is spoken of as a single entity doing it. And then we read about the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the waters. How, how do we understand that? Well, it's one God in three persons. And we have this, all the fullness of deity, all the, the, the weight, all the completeness of deity is in Christ. It's in him. Just as all is a word used in the, in the Colossian heretic uh, vocabulary, so is fullness. I mean, so many times, I think six or seven times here in Colossians, Paul uses either the verb form to be filled or the, the adjective form of fill or the, the, uh, the noun form here, the fullness of deity, the, the completeness of it that is centered in uh, in Christ himself, he is the one that in which, in whom all this fullness, all this completeness, all this uh, perfection rests and relies. We think, how can that be? Christ who emptied himself, Philippians 2 speaks of that, being in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God, something to be held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a man, a bondservant, and on it goes and so forth. And how in the world then can Christ how can God die? Because that's what he did. We're about ready to celebrate that. And Messiah in the Passover time, but also Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. God died for us. And yet, when we understand it's, it's God in the flesh, 
It is God's spirit. And what does the scripture say? Uh, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. When our spirits and our, our, our bodies are separate and the body goes to the grave, the spirit returns, even Ecclesiastes will see, the spirit returns to the maker, to the creator who gave it. God in the flesh, Jesus is that one. He is the one in whom that deity dwells. And not just in a temporary fashion. Let me skip ahead just a little bit. We'll come back to this. And he says, in him, if I were to read it literally, it would say, in him dwells all the fullness of God bodily. So it puts the emphasis on in Christ right at the beginning of the, of the, of the sentence or this phrase. But then it says, dwells. And this idea of dwelling is not like my wife and I did this past week. We went to another state and we stayed in a hotel. We did not dwell in that. We didn't bring all of our books and, you know, put them on the shelves and all of our stuff and, you know, bring all of our pantry goods and stock them over here. We did not forward our mail. We did not say, you know, we're going to take up residence. We did not change our address and our license. Uh, you know, we did not dwell in that place. That was a temporary a sojourning kind of a, a nice little getaway. And yet, that's not what he's talking about here. This is not a sojourning or a temporary kind of a situation. This is not even as that would be like a stranger coming in to visit. You know, we're going to come and visit, but we're going to go back home. The idea here is not that, not sojourning, but coming and being established in this place. We can see it in relation to Jesus. When he was raised up as a child, he lived and, and grew and his his home, his domicile, was Nazareth in Galilee. He lived there for years and years and years. But then he moved from Nazareth, and we could talk about why that is, but he moved to a city in, in Galilee called Capernaum. And he did not become a stranger there. He didn't. He moved. He moved his family over there. He just that was his his new uh, center of ministry and of uh, of dwelling. When we, Scripture talks about the men who dwell in Jerusalem, especially in Acts two, and, and not just the ones who are guests from all these different you know, neighboring countries, Jews who've come in to celebrate Passover, but especially those who here reside in Jerusalem, the dwellers in Jerusalem. We talk about uh, Abram, Ab Abraham, Avram, when he dwelt in Haran, in uh, ancient Mesopotamia. And on and on it goes. It talks about those not just temporarily residing in a place, but permanently uh, being established in there. Scripture talks also about God, that he does not dwell in houses made by human hands. In fact, twice in Acts, they made uh, separate preachers. Stephen mentions it in Acts 7, and then Paul mentions it in Acts 17, in relation to, or in the context of speaking with philosophers there in Mars Hill in, in Athens, and he makes the same makes the same affirmation: God does not dwell in temples made by human hands or him with human hands. Where is God? He is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. He's not subject to these the rules of this world and the the political infighting and and the limits of of you know mortality. Our God is our belly, and that's not. It'll be interesting. This is a free parenthetical bracket kind of thing. It'll be interesting to see how sober the world gets when there's a lack of food. Have you heard about some of the, the shortages we have in, in food supply, even in seeds? I'm talking with the fella. Uh, we, um, when we're hungry, a lot of the nonsense that we 
talk about, a lot of the foolishness that's maintained and offered, it kind of will fall by the wayside when there is just basic survival at state, at stake. That's maybe a pun, stakes. But uh, when when people are hungry, they will do all kinds of things. And it will be interesting, again, given the, the, the conversations going on in our present culture, because we're fat and happy and stupid and ignorant and rebellious. But when, when some of those basic necessities are taken away, food, clothing, shelter, we might see a sobering up of some of the, the foolish, ignorant, wicked conversation that is going on. I'm speaking specifically about homosexuality or transgenderism. When there is, when you're hungry, you're not concerned about that. You're concerned, concerned about food, your daily bread, and yet we thank God. One person said it this way. This is still part of that bracket, so we'll get back to the main idea. One person said, you know, what do you need for life? Do you need food? Not really. Do you need to breathe? I mean, it's convenient, but it's not essential to your life. What is needful in your life? A relationship with God. Because our life on earth is not where it's at. Our life is in Christ. Colossians 3 talks about our life is now hidden with Christ in God, and when he reveals, then that's real life. That is what we're after. So we have this, coming back to the, coming, transition back with me to the, the main text. When we have Christ in whom all this, this, this treasure, all this, this fullness of deity dwells, not just temporarily, not as a stranger, but right at home with Christ. That's what uh, gives us the power, the confidence to withstand any kind of false teaching, any kind of doctrine that would, would take us, entice us away from Christ. Why would we leave the fountain of living waters and go after a broken cistern that doesn't even hold water? I mean, you look at it, there's nothing there. And yet we have this, this pure, wonderful, fresh fountain over here. And we said, that's really nice, but let me go see what else I can find. In Christ, the fullness of deity dwells. The fullness of it, not just a portion of it, and not just, uh, not just, uh, uh, you know, certain, if you look at it this way, you can see it, but if you turn this way, you can't see it. No. Whenever you look at Christ, any which way you cut him, you know, not literally, but any which way you try to analyze him, evaluate him, you see Christ. You, you see God. You see, uh, godly behavior, godly attitude, submission to God the Father, the wonderful relationship between the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in Christ himself. This is, again, against the, the, the pre-Gnostic heresies that are kind of working its way up through the Colossian church. It's against a, really a pagan theology that hey, God is in everything, and, and we're, you know, we're all gods in various ways. And Paul says, no, in Christ is where that is. Now, some people would say, take this idea of deity, maybe some of your translations say Godhead or or something of that that way in shape and form. Some people would say, well, that statement of of the fullness of deity, or like Second uh, Peter one four says, we are partakers of the divine nature, and so uh, well we know we're not God, and yet when it speaks of uh, partaking, the, you know, sharing in the divine nature, or uh, later or in Ephesians three, I think it's nineteen, talks about uh, that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God, and so whatever. And they're talking about the, the the church or believers that would be filled up to all the fullness of God. Well, okay, well, if that is true, and we know we're not God, and yet we can be called the fullness of God, then maybe when this, you know, Colossians 2 9 says the fullness of God or deity, Godhead, is spoken of Jesus, well, it doesn't mean, doesn't require that he is God in the flesh. It just means that, you know, like, like, like us, he is 
um, attached to or uh, uh, affected toward God himself. There's no statement of being or essence uh, spoken of here, some would say. I say, no, that's not at all, not all the way. There are different words that are used, and, and there are two different words, two different roots, well, sort of roots, that are, are spoken of in these different passages I've mentioned, Ephesians 3.19 and First Peter or 2 Peter 1 and verse 4, that would indicate the contrast between something that is essentially one thing or kind of like, has the characteristics of something or uh, has uh, attributes or, or qualities kind of like that. Uh, we might talk about it in terms of, and it, and it kind of pertains to that, suffix, that, that little suffix you could put on the end of a word called hood. Like if you have a brother, that is, you know, that's a person, that's a brother. But when you talk about brotherhood, that's something that's associated with the idea, the concept of brotherhood. We're not actually talking about two people, two brothers. We're talking about a brotherhood. Or you might, in a different sense, you might talk about a human, which would be a, a being, uh, an essence, uh, an entity, or something that is humane which in modern vernacular talks about gentleness and compassion toward toward um, other people. But it has to do with a human characteristic, a human attribute, as opposed to the human itself, right? So that's kind of the idea here. When we have the idea, the, the concept of attribute or uh, a characteristic or a quality of God, that's what we read about, like in that Second Peter uh, 1-4 passage, in fact, he uses it twice, in, beginning at verse 3. He says, uh, seeing that his divine power, now that's the, not God himself, but the things that flow from God. We see his divine power, his, his characteristic of deity, not the deity itself, but his work. Uh, and we see his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And then it goes down at the end of verse 4, uh, so that by these things, these wonderful promises, you may become partakers of the divine <clears throat> nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. What he's talking about there is the the supernatural life we have in Christ. Not that we somehow become God. Now, God is in the flesh. God is in our flesh. Well, he is. He's given us his Holy Spirit, but doesn't make us God. We have God himself in the, in the flesh, in humanity or in bodily form that we could speak about. It's that contrast between God and Godhood or brother and brotherhood, or human and humane, uh, deity versus divine. So many times in the Old Testament, this word is also used, actually not very many times. In fact, here in Colossians 2.9 is the only word ever in the whole Bible spoken of in the essential form, you know, talking about Godhead or deity, the God himself as a person versus the divinity aspect, things that flow from God. Uh, divine gifts or divine nature, as Second Peter one four says, or uh, actually Paul uses this this the second category when he talks at that at the um, Mars Hill Acts seventeen he talks about the um, the divine nature he says we are not supposed that the divine nature this other category over here is um, like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the craft and thought of man. No, he he does not dwell in, in, in human, you know, temples made with human hands. He is God in the flesh, but he uses, because he's in a philosophical, Greek philosophical situation, he uses that modern or that contemporary terminology to talk about divinity. He talks about the divine. Well, the divine is 
God himself. We can talk about his characteristics, his attributes, his qualities, and so forth, but it's pointing back to God himself. My point in that long discussion is, this isn't just Jesus is divine, like we might even call you know, various theological and church leaders the divines. We affectionately refer to them, some of them as, you know, the divines taught this. Well, that means that they're speaking about God's stuff. But there's God. The fullness of God himself is what Paul is talking about here. The fullness of, of the Godhead is not, not Godhood, but Godhead. The fullness of God himself is here. And he speaks to this point that we have this uh, entire fullness of deity, or other translations say the complete being of the Godhead. This is against the, the false teacher's affirmations. No, uh, you know, the divine nature, we have part of it. We have the divine spark in all of us. Mm-mm. We are in darkness. Every person is in darkness unless we come to Christ. And then we receive not because it's inherent in ourselves, but it's a gift, gift life. Uh, other other places talk about you know when the breath of life leaves us. Well, that the breath was given by God Himself. Uh, Genesis two speaks. You know, God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and he became a living being. Wow! But when and Ecclesiastes says the same thing. When that breath is taken away, then we die. Well, where did that breath come from? It's not inherent in ourselves. It's in Christ, and so we have this this fullness of deity in Christ alone. Different to everything we experience in our lives. Now we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us, and yet and yet, we are not God. Fundamental rule of theology in Lecture 2, there's a God, you're not him. There is a God, he is outside of our experience, outside of our time-space experience, but he is near to us. There is both the immanence, the transcendent eternality of God, but also the imminence, the nearness, the, the we can reach out and touch him kind of thing, and faith uh, have faith in him. This idea of all the fullness of deity is spoken of. I mentioned Romans 8 and the, the, the combination or the presentation, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. Uh, maybe I'll mention it, you can write it down, but Romans 8, 9 through 11 speaks about that. He says, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Spirit of God, I'm going to put, I'm going to add some words, not to change the meaning of the text, but to, brought, to draw out the meaning of what he's speaking of. If indeed the Spirit of God, the Father dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, the Son, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive, not the Holy Spirit, but our human spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of God the Father, who raised Jesus the Son from the dead, dwells in you, God the Father, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his, namely, God the Father's Spirit, who dwells in you. You see this this wonderful, full, complete revelation of God. It's the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of Christ. It is Christ working. It is God the Father who raised Jesus from the, from the grave. It is the Spirit of God dwelling in you. We see the triune Godhead at work even in these three verses. It's all over the scripture to see the, the beauty of deity dwelling among us and, and wanting to dwell among us. Can you imagine even that? The eternal God who's self-sufficient in himself says, I want to create a bunch of human creatures, critters, uh, we might affectionately call ourselves, that I can have fellowship with. And we think, how, why? 
Why in the world? Because, and this is a mystery beyond us, but it's spoken of in Scripture, because God the Father wanted to show love and adoration and affection toward God the Son. He wanted his Son to be worshipped and honored and glorified. And, and we read about it so much in Revelation. You know, All the, the saints will fall down, and not just the saints, but everybody, every tongue will confess that what? Jesus is Lord. Because that's what God the Father wants. He wants his Son to receive the glory. We see that in Christ dwells all this fullness of deity. Now, last, last word to look at here is this adverb, bodily, in fleshly form. Now, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say the fullness of, of deity dwells in a body. Because that would be a limiting function. For us, it's kind of like a genie in a bottle kind of thing. Well, you got the genie in a bottle. I guess you can do whatever you want to with it. That's not anything like that. It is not a container in the sense that somehow God is now in a box. It would be very similar to the to the uh, exp- uh, the understanding that the Israelites had about the Ark of the Covenant. Remember back when they fought against the Philistines at Aphek and they said, well, if we bring God down to the battle, then God will deliver us. But because they thought they had God in a box, literally. And God would have nothing to do with it. He says, I will not be misunderstood and and uh, misrepresented, uh, uh, not just to Israel, but to these other nations. They may not think of me as one who is bound to some location, you know, literally a box or even a a land, you know, because there were different gods of this territory and that territory, and, and you come into a new land, you need to learn who the gods are that, that manage this place. He says, I am not bound to any place. I am the one who made the heavens and the earth, all the lands, all the seas, everything is mine, and everything it contains is mine, and I'm outside of that. We see here, then, that it's not God in a body, in, in somehow limited form, but God in a fleshly uh, in a fleshly form, unless we think, well, oh, so Christ wasn't real? He wasn't a real? It was just an appearance of humanity? No. I mean, you talk to Mary. She gave birth to this child. She nursed him. She took care of him. You know, did he have skin knees? Most likely he was a human boy. And yet you can read so much, like in, in uh, Luke 2, at the end of it, when, when uh, Jesus goes into the temple in Jerusalem, and he says, must I not be about my father's business? Jesus understood, and he was growing, right? Last verse of chapter 2, Luke says, he grew in stature, wisdom and stature, and in favor with God. And man, he's growing. He's a human child growing. It's not an appearance. When he's hanging on the cross, it's not an apparition. It's not a ghost. It is Christ himself. When he, when the resurrected Christ comes to his own disciples, and some of them were saying, what in the world's going on? He says, touch the marks. Put your hand in my side. Hey, you guys have anything here to eat? Not that he needed anything, but he ate in their presence. And where'd that food go? Did it just kind of fall to the ground kind of thing when, when they handed it to him? No, he is a human person. Now, can he walk through walls? Well, evidently, because it says the doors were being shut, and yet here, there he was. And he said, hey, peace. Because they're frightened. They're scared out of their gourds. And yet he is there in his mercy, appearing to his frightened, fearful, concerned for their lives, disciples saying, hey, take heart. I've overcome the world. Stay here and tell Jerusalem because you need, you can't do this in your own selves. You need another comforter. But wait here, I'll send him to you. Let me go to heaven, get things taken care of. I'll send him to you. Just wait here until you are clothed with power from on high. 
this bodily form is Christ himself, God becoming flesh. You could read John 1 through John 1, 1 through verse about 18 and read that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews talks about the days of his flesh. You think, well, he's still in flesh, but he's in resurrected flesh. It's a little different. First Corinthians 15 talks about the difference of, of, uh, you know, natural flesh and resurrected flesh. And so we have this, this, uh, wonderful reality that all the fullness of God dwells in Christ himself. Now he's not necessarily referring to the act of incarnation, but the result of it. God in a body. God in, not just limited to it, but God in human flesh, or Philippians 2 would also speak about it here. This word is only used here, this adverb is only used here, but other places would talk about, uh, the adjectival form of this would talk about bodily discipline. First Peter, First Timothy 4 and verse 8 says bodily discipline is only of little profit, and that says, yay, for, you know, we don't have to exercise today, because it profits little. Well, it profits a little bit, but in terms of where we ought to spend our time, godliness is profitable for everything. Exercise may help your heart, may help, help your muscle tone and that kind of thing, and even your state of mind. But godliness, having a, a, an aptitude and an affection and an attitude toward God, godliness is profitable for everything. That is what we ought to be spending our time on. So it's the difference between spirit and flesh. And Paul says here, the fullness of deity, God the Spirit, dwells in a human body. And we have this this uh, joy that since Christ also was raised from the dead, we'll see it in this passage, we also will be raised from the dead in the same way as he. This isn't speaking just about his resurrection body. It talks about the fact that he became a man, and from infancy until the grave, and then after the grave, God is here in the flesh. He is accomplishing these things. Now, one last idea about this, and we'll be done, is that the two times here in Colossians that he talks about the fullness, here specifically the fullness of deity, but the first time we saw it in verse 19 of chapter 1, uh, it was ple- God was pleased for all the fullness to dwell in him. But in both of those passages, back in chapter 1 and here in chapter 2, the context or the 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 underlying thought or the reason that Paul brings out this, the reality that God is in the flesh is in the, the context of salvation. It is in the context of reconciliation. I won't get into the whole thing. In fact, if you want to know more about it, come next Friday night to our Passover Seder, uh, Christ Messiah in the Passover, because the wages of sin is death. The, the, the requirement that God has for justice to be served for sin is death. You, the soul that sins shall surely die. Um, and Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is righteousness, or the righteousness is that gift through Christ. Somebody's got to die. And you think, well, how can God the Father, how can God die? Well, God cannot, he, he's alive. It, he is, he, he's not going to die, but God in the flesh, taking on humanity, a humanity that can die, flesh can die, God became a man so that his body could pay that penalty. And because he's God in the flesh, it's not just you die for your own sin and, and actually because Jesus righteously lived all his life, he didn't wasn't condemned in eternal death, but his death accomplished salvation not for himself because he was righteous. There's nobody in human history that could say that their death was a righteous death. 
even Daniel, I talk about Daniel or Noah, of which a very nothing is negatively spoken about Daniel in the scripture. Uh, but even them, you read Daniel 9, you read Daniel's penitential prayer of confession, we have sinned and all this. The point is, Christ accomplished salvation for us by God becoming human so the human, uh, the body can die and be raised up with him as the first fruits, as the firstborn of all those who would put their faith not just in what Christ has done, but in Christ himself, in his person. The authority with which Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, you know, you've heard it said this way, but I say to you, it's not like the prophets of old who say, thus says the Lord. Because the prophet is just saying what God says, but Jesus says, I say to you, or come unto me, or listen to me, or, uh, you know, the prophet spoke about me. Abraham looked and rejoiced to see my day, or he saw it and he was glad. Christ is where it's at. He is the fullness of deity. He is the one who accomplishes salvation for us, and for us then to to rest in that knowledge gives us hope. It gives us uh, the endurance that we need in this life with so many anti-Christ messages coming against us. It's not just anti-Christian, but they hate Jesus. They hate everything he stands for, everything he teaches, everything that, that he, oh, he claims to do this. They hate him. And we cannot change that hatred of people except by the power of the gospel. Unless Jesus changes the human heart, human hearts will reject him to the grave. And then when they're in the grave and they're, they're, they're suffering, they will curse him. Now they'll honor him. They will give, you know, every tongue will confess and so forth. But they hate the whole idea. And so God really in, in eternal condemnation gives people exactly what they wanted all their lives. Separation from him. I don't want God in my life. I want to live this way. He says, okay, it's death. It is pain. It is suffering. Why would you choose that over life? Why would you not love Christ? Why would you not give your attention to him? Why would you not draw near to him? Why would you not even be willing to suffer inconvenience and pain and loss in this life, knowing that this isn't where it's at? Our lives here are so, I would say, temporary. We are sojourners in this life, and yet we dwell. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to dwell, to settle down, to reside with him in glory. That's our hope. Look to Christ. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the truth that we have in Christ himself, how you have just uh, placed in him, in his beautiful person, every aspect, every uh, fullness of deity, not just the, the characteristics, the qualities, the, the conditions of deity, but God himself in Christ. Please help us to give our attention to him. Please help us to set our affection on Christ. We know that we should love Christ, but it's not like a uh, something that we need to, to trump up or, or generate. It is the natural flow of a life that says, wow, you loved me. Christ gave himself for me. I love him. I want to love him more, more better, more fully. Help us, each one of us, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Please help us as we speak with believers, as we speak with unbelievers, uh, nice unbelievers, or maybe cantankerous, hostile, engage in evil deeds kind of unbelievers. In either way, please help us to make the issue Christ, what Christ is doing, what he is doing even now in our lives, interceding for us, giving us his spirit, giving us life. Our, our life is now hidden with Christ in God. We pray that he would be revealed very soon. Please help us to persevere to the end. Please help us to maintain and be steadfast in your truth, because that is the only thing going. So much 
of lies and deception and of falsehoods and of anti-God messaging out in this world. Please help us to stand firm, but also to stand forth uh, is as uh, your ambassadors pleading with people, not because we can convince people into, into eternity, but we plead as, as if you were making your appeal through us, be reconciled to God. Please save, please sanctify your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.